You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of Energy Voices and the next hour of programming on the station. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to have two long-form interviews exploring very different topics in the world of energy. First, we're going to have Jeff Rubin, who's a renowned economist and author, describe his new book, The Carbon Bubble, and give us some exposure to the risk that Canada currently faces in a carbon-constrained world and uses the concepts of economic bubbles of past to explain the situation that we're in related to carbon constraints globally. We're going to look at the other side of the equation and talk to Dharmawan Samsu, who's the country manager for Indonesia for BP globally. Dharmawan has a really interesting perspective on what it's like to be involved in providing energy access and developing the energy structure of the country of Indonesia, the fourth largest population in the entire world, basically from scratch. We're going to look at these two very differing issues and the juxtaposition of both of them of how we simultaneously operate in a carbon constrained world while still paying attention to the fact that there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of people globally who don't have access to modern energy. So without further ado, we're going to kick things off with Jeff Rubin discussing carbon bubbles. So next up on Energy Voices, we're sitting down with Jeff Rubin. Jeff Rubin is the former chief economist at CIBC World Markets and author of critically acclaimed books such as The End of Growth and Why Your World is About to Get a Whole Lot Smaller. Jeff has just released The Carbon Bubble, What Happens to Us When It Bursts, and we're excited to sit down and talk through the concepts of a carbon bubble and a carbon budget with Jeff. So first off, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So to to kick us off, can you give us a short overview of what a carbon bubble is for our listeners? So people that aren't familiar with the the term carbon bubble, uh, give us the elevator speech on what a carbon bubble is. Well, uh, maybe we should start off by talking about what bubbles are. And of course, uh, I'm not referring to those that are created by dipping a wand in detergent and creating little effervescent balls that all of a sudden disappear. Those bubbles aren't built to last, but neither are they in the economy. And I guess one thing that people have to recognize is that that bubbles are not not that infrequent in terms of, of our economy. They've been around for hundreds of years. The 16th century Dutch tulip bulb uh, bubble, the South Seas bubble in the 17th century. You know, in recent memory, uh, I can think of three bubbles, uh, the dot-com bubble uh, and the turn of the millennium. Uh, In Canada, um, one stock, Nortel Networks, which was over 30% of the entire market cap of the TSX, and then a year later, it was virtually zero. Uh, Then there was the subprime mortgage bubble, uh, where we saw billions of dollars of financial instruments that were backed by the mortgage payments of unemployed homeowners uh, that were rated as creditworthy by rating agencies like Standard & Poor's and Moody's as Government of Canada bonds. That collapsed and billions of dollars were written off. And now the carbon bubble um, in Canada... Uh, Neither the dot-com bubble, notwithstanding Nortel, nor the subprime mortgage bubble was as severe as in other places. I think in the carbon bubble, Canada is going to be one of the most severest hit. The carbon bubble is essentially the notion that there is no, no limit to how much carbon fuels we can burn and combust. And I think we're finding 
that in fact there is a limit and that we're rapidly approaching that limit and that's going to have dramatic implications for the future consumption of fossil fuels. That's a, a great overview. Um, and, and I had a, a wonderful time reading through your book. Uh, and and I, well, I think my favorite part of the whole book was the opening salvo that you you have on page one. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a short uh, paragraph from uh, the opening of the book and then get, get a couple questions and comments from you on that. So um, if, you, if you crack open Carbon Bubble on the first page, uh, you're greeted with this paragraph of, if you happen to call Canada home, things are bleaker still. You reside in a country whose government has not only been willfully turning a blind eye to the problem of a carbon bubble, but has also been building the country's economic future on a foundation of high-cost, emissions-intensive heavy oil, a foundation that can't possibly hold as climate change forces us to move away from our unhealthy reliance on fossil fuels. This failure to truly see where we are and to act accordingly is going to have repercussions for the economy as a whole and for you. So this opening paragraph, it brings up some wonderful questions that sort of are, are answered over the course of the book. Um, but I wanted your thoughts on, on the, 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 the section of that paragraph where you say, um, when you talk about the willful, willfully turning a blind eye to the concept of a carbon, carbon bubble. So what specifically do you think or do you feel uh, warrants that statement? So what has the Harper government been doing in your mind that shows that they're willfully turning a blind eye to this problem? Well, I mean, the Harper government has uh, always been skeptical, if not an outright denier, of all the scientific evidence pointing to climate change and pointing to the link between fossil fuel combustion and climate change. And, you know, that's understandable. If you think the oil sands are the engine of economic growth, that we're going to go from producing 2 million barrels a day to 5 million barrels a day, uh, you obviously can't put much credence in the whole notion of climate change because once you do, you recognize that we're rapidly going to run up against the wall where we're not going to be able to have business as usual, where we're not going to be able to consume ever greater amounts of coal and oil. And in that kind of world, high-cost oil sources, and the oil sands pretty well is the costliest source of oil in the world is going to be very vulnerable. So it's not a surprise. Um, it, there's nothing, you know, that's that's out of the ordinary for the government to have that view on climate change. As I argue later on in the book, maybe the greatest cost of that policy is not so much that we've doubled down, so to speak, on a resource the rest of the world is and will be shorting, but rather that in denying climate change, uh, we've turned a blind eye to some of the economic opportunities that climate change will bring. And I mean, aside from low-lying islands that are about to be submerged, few places on the globe are going to be impacted more by climate change than the Canadian landmass, which is a high-latitude uh, area and that's going to see temperature changes a multiple of the global average. And I think that there's going to be all kinds of economic opportunities. And, you know, ironically, Stephen Harper may be right in thinking that Western Canada will be the engine of future economic growth, but that engine won't be about bitumen and oil sands. That, that engine will be about 
food and becoming a global breadbasket. Um, and uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but I want to go back to that paragraph again when you say um, the failure to see where we are and to act accordingly is going to have repercussions. And so can you give us a little bit more depth on on what it means in your opinion, for Canada to act accordingly. So if we're going to recognize, address, and tackle issues like the carbon bubble that are facing us right now, um, what does it mean for us to act accordingly and to solve that? Well, I mean, first of all, we have to change courses. And uh, I think we are changing courses. Uh, Everything from the abysmal performance of oil sand stocks on the stock market, and they're now trading at the same levels they were trading in the depths of the recession to the recent election results in Alberta is uh, are really you know indications that the goalposts are moving that that we realize that we're not going to be an energy superpower uh, that our future really isn't in the expansion of oil sands it changes the conversation about a whole lot of things like pipelines for example I mean there's no longer an economic context for these pipelines whether we're talking Northern Gateway Keystone XL Energy East because these pipelines were designed to facilitate this huge increase in production and virtually every day, whether it's the Jocelyn mine or the Pierre River mine, the very projects that were going to create this great, this big increase in production are being canceled. So, so a lot of things are changing. I think in Alberta, what we've got to recognize is how to get more economic value added out of what's already occurred. We certainly are not getting the full advantage of the two million barrels that we're digging out. It's an extractive model where we're just shipping low-priced raw bitumen to be turned into valuable products like gasoline and petrochemicals somewhere else. And I think it also means looking about the future, what are going to be the big economic issues? And, you know, I think that in 10 to 20 years, as I say, it's, it's not going to be pipelines. Pipelines don't have an economic context at today's oil prices, let alone tomorrow's. But I think issues like water and irrigation are really going to be the major, uh, the major policy issues facing governments. We bring that up a lot at Student Energy, where we talk about the need to look at the energy system on uh, a proper time scale. And, and again, to remind listeners that most of these pipelines are built off of 20, 25, 30-year um, economic models. And so it's if the economics of today aren't making sense, how do the economics of 2027 uh, make any sense or, or, or beyond into the future? Yeah, and I think, you know, let's look at... Uh, Let's look at what a, a 450 parts per million world would imply, and 450 parts uh, carbon per million atmosphere is sort of the threshold that the scientific community has defined as as holding global climate change to a to a two degree uh, rise. Um, the International Energy Agency a couple of years ago modeled what that looks like in terms of carbon fuel consumption by 2030, 35. We're talking about something like a 33% decline in world coal consumption. Uh, We're talking about oil consumption, global oil consumption, peaking in the next five years and then declining from down to around 80 million barrels a day. We're right now about 92 million barrels a day. Where does that leave high-cost sources of oil? Uh, And as I say, the oil sands is probably the highest cost. It it leaves most of that oil in the ground. And I know that... um, 
TransCanada and Enbridge and all the pipeline companies have shipper agreements, long-term supply contracts, because you don't build pipelines without those. I'm just suggesting that those shipper agreements aren't worth the paper they're written on because the projects that were going to fill those pipelines are never going to get built. They're never going to get financed. And every month we're seeing cancellations left and right. Every month we're seeing the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers reduce their long-term projections for oil production. And I think I think the conversation has to shift to, well, if we can't expand, how can we get more economic value added out of what we're doing? And I think, you know, that's a conversation we have to have, particularly in this province, and that's really the future of this industry, because uh, I think when you look at what's happened here, uh, we've left a lot on the table. And you talk about this concept of growth and, and growing green quite a bit in the book. Um, and, and one thing I wanted to have a bit of a discussion with you about was some of the the, the rhetoric you have around Tesla Motors. So you referenced the fact that uh, Tesla Motors is sort of the shining example of uh, a very environmentally friendly company pushing electric vehicles. Um, they've had 1,400% stock increase since they IPO'd. Um, but the reality of, of venture capital return in clean tech is nowhere near as rosy as the Tesla motor story. So if we're going to be growing green and we're going to be focusing more on, on high growth ventures that have economic return in, in this ecosystem, how do we improve the economics so that there's more Tesla motors and, and less bankruptcies like there's been in, in the clean tech industry? Well, um, just to back up, uh, the first thing I said was uh, in a carbon-constrained world where we have a carbon budget, yeah. it yeah. turns the trade-off between environmental stewardship and economic growth on its head. I mean, we've all been taught that uh, doing the right thing for the environment is at the expense of economic growth and, and jobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my second book, The End of Growth, really addressed that. I mean, the only surefired way we know of restraining carbon emissions is to have recessions because emissions have invariably fallen, which is no great surprise if 80% of the energy driving the world economy comes from hydrocarbons. If GDP declines, then so does the demand for hydrocarbons. And we've seen that even more recently last year for the first time, China's emissions fell because China's coal consumption fell and China's growth rate is half of what it used to be. But, you know, most people wouldn't consider a permanent recession to be a acceptable acceptable way of managing carbon. I, I'm just pointing out that if we're going to grow, we got to grow green. And what does that mean? It means that that emissions per unit of GDP have to fall at the same rate that GDP grows, because if they don't fall, soon there won't be any room for GDP growth. Now, whether that means Tesla Motors, uh, whether that means wind power, uh, whether that means new sources of power that we haven't even discovered is all on the table. But, but clearly, facing this carbon constraint Um, we're going to need to find new sources of energy uh, if we're going to have economic growth. Now, you know, what are the circumstances that, that, that facilitate technological change? I mean, Stephen Harper recently said at the G7 meeting where the G7 said we got to abandon fossil fuels by the end of the century, that technology is the answer. Well, I mean, in a sense it is, but technology is not a totally exogenous event. It just doesn't fall out of the sky. It's conditioned by economic circumstances. 
you know, certainly by putting a price on carbon, we're incenting technology. And I think that's the role that governments have to play, not just in Canada, but around the world. We've even had the privilege on this show before of having uh, firms such as Carbon Engineering who are working on direct air capture um, where they can directly remove atmospheric CO2 and and their entire business model is predicated on that concept of, of carbon pricing and, and constraining carbon in a way. Um, their dream scenario is the cost of extracting a ton of CO2 is the same as the cost of storing a ton of CO2. But um, you can to your point that, that technology is, is driven by market factors. We currently have technology that exists that just has no economic use case because uh, carbon is free to pollute in, in the large majority of, of cases in the world. Right. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that carbon capture and sequestration doesn't have a future, but, you know, I think most of these people in that industry will, will acknowledge that we need to be talking about a triple digit price on carbon emissions, at least $100 a ton. And, and, and for that to happen, we need government to act. And, you know, just as the cost of a bottle of rum doesn't depend just on the price of sugar cane or the cost of a package of smokes on the cost of tobacco, nor should the cost of filling up at the pumps just depend on the cost of extracting and processing oil, but on combusting it. And I think the tax system has a huge role to play here that we've got to shift the tax base more and more from what we earn to what we burn. You've brought up uh, a number of times sort of the, the terminology of, of carbon constraints and, and how we constrain carbon. Um, and, and there's also some, some interesting ways that that's been developing uh, largely through financial means. You've seen recently uh, the, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the $850 billion plus um, oil fund of the government of Norway that has recently divested of all of their coal investments. Um, for our student audience, there's been a huge interest in campus divestment uh, activities. So I just wanted your thoughts on the sort of efficacy of um, using capital as a leverage point to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, where have you seen it be effective and, and where do you see that going in the future? Well, I think it's it's super important. Uh, I come from, as you know, an, an investment banking background. And uh, so I understand the importance of capital. And this is a very capital intensive business. Now, you mentioned Norway uh, uh, dis divesting from coal stocks. Uh, a little while ago, uh, to great uh, fanfare, uh, Stanford's endowment fund, which is about $18 billion in the U.S., announced that they were divesting from coal stocks. Um, what they didn't mention was that virtually all of the coal stocks that they had in their portfolio were no longer eligible to be in their portfolio. You have to be investment grade to be in an institutional portfolio like like a, a pension plan or a university endowment fund. Well, if you look at what's happened to all the, the so-called, you know, coal stocks in the U.S. like Peabody Energy, Arch Coal, Alpha Resources, all S&P 500 stalwarts, all in Stanford's fund, they, they've lost 90% of their market cap. So wouldn't it have been better if Stanford had decided to do that on an ex-ante as opposed to ex-post basis? Uh, it, <laughs> it still makes for a great press release for them. <laughs> That's right. But I'm just saying, uh, you know, <laughs> instead of, you know, I have a chapter there called Save Your Portfolio Before You Save the World. Um 
you know, um, quite apart from saving the world and divesting, denying capital to carbon industries. I mean, the carbon industries have been one of the worst performing sectors of the stock market. So let's now turn to Canada. Uh, can On the TSX, there's not a whole lot of coal. Uh, probably tech resources is the largest, and they've been hammered just like the U.S. coal stocks. But, but oil is a different story. Uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange is very oily. It has about two, two and a half times the oil of the S&P 500. And maybe more importantly, it has high cost oil, which is the most vulnerable to any emission restraints. Um, my own alma mater, University of Toronto, of which I make a very modest annual contribution to their uh, endowment fund, um, has about $50 million in various oil sand stocks. Um, if you look at the performance of oil sand stocks, uh, if you look at, say, the uh, BlackRock's uh, iShares Oil Sands, which is an exchange-traded fund that captures all the oil sands uh, companies listed on the TSX, uh, that exchange trade funds lost about 70% of its value. Those stocks are trading at the lows of the last recession. So, uh, you know, I would question uh, what uh, contribution they've made to U of T's endowment fund or indeed the endowment fund of any Canadian university. Uh, I think that, you know, if, if we're looking at a carbon-constrained world in the future, high-cost oil, like the oil of the oil sands, uh, you're going to find that those stocks will do to U of T's endowment fund what Peabody Energy has done to Stanford's endowment fund. Great. That's just a, a wonderful analysis, Jeff. Uh, I, I want to take us on a bit of a different track, um, and, and we haven't we didn't dive really deep into policy yet. Um, and I want to draw attention to the fact that the Kyoto Protocol was signed 18 years ago, um, and we're only just starting to see some tangible movement in in the major countries like China and the U.S. around um, either coal regulations or emissions reduction targets. Why is it that you think that it's taken over almost two decades of very active uh, policy work to get any sort of real tangible progress uh, around emissions reductions? Well, uh, two reasons. First of all, emissions are a function of economic growth. And up until the last recession, economic growth, particularly in the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, was at a torrid pace, and, and that required a lot of oil, and that required a lot of coal. And I think, secondly, um, as time has gone by, the evidence of and the linkage between the combustion of carbon fuels and climate change has gone stronger and stronger and is now virtually irrefutable. Um, I would point out, um, because people can despair at the lack of international uh, action and at the uh, very minimal chances of that changing in the future, that investors in Peabody Energy and other coal stocks three years ago went to sleep every night comfortable in the knowledge that we'd never have a meaningful global treaty on emissions. And they've woken up to a nightmare. And what they've discovered is that while we still don't have a meaningful, comprehensive global treaty on emissions, individual countries, for very different reasons, have taken actions that have been, and in this particular case, the two largest coal-burning countries in the world, China and the United States, have taken actions that 
were, are just as devastating to coal prices, which have been more than halved in the last three years, and coal share values as any global action. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, that has some poignant lessons for people who are long heavy oil. And on the policy side, we're, we're not too far away from COP21 in Paris, which many of us feel is going to be the most impactful uh, piece of policy and legislation that's ever come around uh, in this space. So I have to ask the question, if if Jeff Rubin was writing the draft text at COP21 in Paris, what would you be inserting into those texts? Well, I mean, I, I think the most important thing that we can do is, is have a global price on carbon emissions that uh, creates a, a level field and, and a price that gets real traction at the pumps. I mean, if we're talking about oil, for example, uh, oil's last stand is as a transport fuel, but over 70% of all the oil burnt is in that capacity. So in other words, if you don't feel it at the pumps, it ain't working. But, you know, what ultimately we're going to need to see is a triple-digit global price on, on carbon and it's got to be global, otherwise people are just going to arbitrage the differences in regulations. Or if it's not global, then we're going to need to have a carbon tariff so that those countries that don't play by the same rules don't seek, don't garnish any economic advantage by combusting fuels that other countries aren't allowed to do. If you had to give me a specific price, what would you price carbon at globally? I mean, we're going to need we're going to need something close to a hundred dollars a ton, and to get real economic traction, and uh, you know that's uh, that's going to be uh, you know that's that's going to be a very significant increase in fuel prices. Now we don't need to wait for Paris. I mean, we can do things right here in Canada. We've already have a price pretty well working system in British Columbia. It's not a hundred dollars a ton, but it's thirty dollars a ton. Uh, we have cap and trade, not ideal, but better than nothing in Quebec and soon Ontario. Uh, and possibly we might even have that happening in Alberta. So uh, so provinces are moving, countries are moving. Uh, obviously, a global agreement would be preferable, but I wouldn't despair if we don't get a, a global agreement. And I hearken back to my earlier comments about the complacency of investors in coal stocks who uh, who misread a lack of global action to mean that there wouldn't be, the goalposts wouldn't be moving in places like China. And believe me, they're moving. That's it for the, the questions that I have for you today, Jeff. But I, I just wanted to share a bit of an anecdote and, and why I think your your book resonated so strongly with me. Um, I'm the, the son of an RCMP officer, and so we, we moved all over Alberta growing up. And I lived in Fort McMurray for seven years, starting in 1997. And... I remember when we were doing our, our house hunting trip and we got to do a tour of the oil sands and the RCMP had identified that Fort McMurray was going to be a boom town and they needed good cops to come up there. And we toured around the oil sands facilities. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, isn't this weird that this is going to be a ghost town one day? And, and seeing hundreds of billions of dollars in assets and machinery and equipment and infrastructure in, in a town that it might be 100 years from now or 200 years from now, but at some point in time, we're no longer going to be using those assets. And it's always just struck me as this really uh, shallow conversation that exists to talk about what's next and what's happening after. And so I, I encourage all of our, our listeners um, to pick up a copy of, of your book, Carbon Bubble, because I think it does a great job of really 
bringing to the forefront the the, the magnitude of the challenge that we face in transitioning uh, the dominant e- industry in Alberta and one of the dominant uh, sectors of the Canadian economy to something new, um, because I don't think it's a challenge that anyone has ever overcome uh, without a ton of pain and suffering. And, and I think you've laid out a lot of really interesting uh, options on how we can do that. So um, again, I just uh, want to encourage all of our listeners uh, to pick up the copy of that book. Um, and thank you for your time here today, Jeff. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Okay. And so again, for our listeners, if you want to to get a copy of Jeff's book, you can pick up Carbon Bubble, What Happens to Us When It Bursts. It's available now at Amazon, Chapters, and all fine book retailers. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm joined by Dharmawan Samsu, the head of country for BP Indonesia, and we're going to have a conversation about the role that Indonesia is playing and the changing dynamics that are at play in the Asian energy system. So join me in welcoming Dharmawan Samsu to the show. So Dharmawan, maybe before we we kick off with the interview, can you give us a bit of a background of, of BP Indonesia, what kind of operations do you guys have in the country and, and what is the focus of BP Indonesia and the energy system there? Sean, thank you so much for the interview. I think first of all, I would like to congratulate uh, ISS for the upcoming conference. I'm personally, as well as on behalf of the companies, looking forward to participate on that and with every grade of success. Perfect. Thank you so much. So let me respond to your uh, first questions. Yep. Uh, I think, first of all, I would like to give a, a little bit of uh, contextual background about BP in Indonesia and talk a little bit about myself uh, in terms of what I'm managing uh, as a, as my role as a head of country of BP Indonesia. So first of all, the BP has been in Indonesia for almost 50 years and is one of the largest uh, foreign investors in the country. Every BP's main business stream is represented here. Uh, I can talk about upstream as well as downstream. Mm-hmm. In the upstream sector, our activities include operating of Tango LNG that is located in the Bintuni Bay, Papua Barat province. And we also co-own the FICO joint venture in East Kalimantan, uh, operating for gas and also in search for uh, non-conventional gas resource from CPM activities. Mm-hmm. In the downstream sector, it is represented uh, firstly by Castro Lubricant uh, and secondly by the Petrochemical Indonesia, which produces uh, PTA, purified electrolytic acid, for filling domestic demand of this kind of product. And lastly, the Jasatama Petro Indo Company, which is the extended arms of the supply and trading, or usually called as IFT. Let me talk a little bit about Tango LNG. Uh, it's a BP's main business in Indonesia. It is the first fully integrated LNG operation and also one of the largest LNG facilities in the country. It involves development of a uh, fixed gas field, which was discovered in 1994, and Tango LNG itself started producing in 19, sorry, in 2009. 
and Tango LNG is operated by BP Barao Limited, which is the local company of BP in Indonesia. Tango LNG comprises of two trains that are operating at 95% of operating efficiency at the moment, uh, which produces uh, circa 7.6 million tons of LNG per annum. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to share with you that currently work is now ongoing to expand the plant through the addition of a third LNG train. And this is called the Tango Expansion Project, which will add a new 3.8 million ton of LNG per annum production mm-hmm. and bring the total Tango plant capacity into 11.4 million ton of LNG per annum. So by the time the third Tango LNG train to be completed and on production, Tango LNG will turn into the largest LNG producer in country. Mm-hmm. So and let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about my role as head of country. Yeah. Uh, my responsibility is pretty much to ensure that DP, with all those multiple facets, uh, remain coherent in country. Mm-hmm. I manage the primarily non-technical aspects of the business. Among other things, I also oversee the robust communication and external affairs department at BP Indonesia, which includes uh, the management of our social investment in Papua Barat. Mm-hmm. This is also includes security for overall BP Indonesia, and as well as managing relationships at national and local levels. Mm-hmm. I will stop there. Yeah, and and what percentage you said that uh, that will bring you guys to the the point of being the largest LNG producer in the country? Um, what percentage market share of the LNG market will you guys have in Indonesia at that time? That's a very good question. So I I don't think I I'm prepared to go into the detailed figures at the moment. But eleven point four is is pretty pretty large in terms of. Uh, being part of the majority of supply of LNG uh, produ- production from, for Indonesia. Uh, and from from the perspective of market share, I would say that um, starting in 2014, uh, DP through Tango LNG start to produce and supply its LNG for domestic needs. Mm-hmm. And as you know, that the demand for energy needs in Indonesia continues to grow. We have a large population all needing energy, mm-hmm. and it is not the only challenge. Indonesia is also a large archipelago. And interestingly, in the past, Tango focusing its production for our Asia markets, China, Korea, Japan, and starting last year, we start to produce some of the LNG for the Indonesian market is simply because the need becoming real as well as there are some development of Indonesia with the receiving terminals. Mm-hmm. But this, thing, this is, I think, Indonesia is entering a phase where uh, Indonesia is buying its own LNG production. Mm-hmm. So I would say that uh, if we go back into the national energy policy on which they have of fulfilling the, the energy mix for 2025 by 25% from gas, 
Tangwe LNG will play a very important role, but certainly Tangwe LNG cannot do that alone. We still need other LNG uh, projects and producers to uh, flourishing from from uh, for the upcoming years. Yeah. And you brought up quite a few sort of interesting points that I want to touch on, uh, things around sort of the fact that Indonesia is an archipelago with a number of islands uh, that sort of comprise the overall nation of Indonesia. Um, I want to use that to segue a little bit into picking your brain around um, what is what are some of the energy challenges of Indonesia as a whole? So uh, as, a, as a tier one uh, energy company, you probably have a very interesting viewpoint on the energy demands and sort of the changing energy system at play in Indonesia. And so for, for our listeners that uh, aren't familiar with um, Indonesia and the energy system in Indonesia, can you maybe give us a, a quick overview of, of what the current energy system looks like? Um, what sort of energy access does the average Indonesian have? And maybe what some of the issues around energy access are within the country? So there's there's lots of questions there, but maybe just to boil it down, what is the, the current viewpoint um, of the energy system and energy access in Indonesia? That's a very very good question, Sean. So let me let me try to explain it uh, slowly here. So first of all, you know that you, you may have known that Indonesia is uh, heavily uh, dependent upon the oil production, mm-hmm. and then uh, and we've been we've been uh, having very good production over the past decades, mm-hmm. and the oil production is pretty much going down. Meanwhile, uh, gas continues to be discovered and more gas to be discovered. And I think, uh, first of all, we are switching our paradigm from the utilization heavily on oil to mm-hmm. become uh, giving more focus on, on the gas. Okay. And this is also consistent with the fact that our oil replacement ratio is not uh, really that uh, good at the moment. We are continuing to strive and improving it. Currently, it is under 100%. Um, meanwhile, the gas replacement ratio is pretty much above 100%. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite uh, quite uh, uh, obvious that that uh, gas is, is is the future. However, if we look into energy overall, uh, we we certainly have to have a good mix of energy balance for the future. So uh, I cannot speak on behalf of the other energy stream because it's not what I'm focusing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, however. Uh, like I mentioned before, the country is developing what's so-called the national energy policy, uh, on which gas will play a very important role, and and on which a project such as Tangwe LNG uh, is 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 important, is critical. Mm-hmm. And with respect to energy access, uh, there are, there are two things. Uh, if it is related to oil, then certainly energy access is distributed through tankers, mm-hmm. uh, because Indonesia is archipelago. Uh, and in several islands that are more well in advance or more sophisticated in terms of infrastructure development, they certainly have pipeline systems, mm-hmm. uh, such as the Trans Java pipeline, and then uh, Sumatra starts having some sort of a pipeline uh, uh, development, uh, especially in South Sumatra. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the eastern part of Indonesia is not is not only that they are far, uh, but they are also comprised of large islands. And they are uh, separated by a big mass of water, mm-hmm. which is the Indonesian waters. 
So I think gas uh, eventually uh, will be will be needed to be distributed with uh, an an allergy mechanism is one of the solution because piping gas from one island to the island is almost uh, uh, quite challenging, if I may say, it, mm-hmm. in the right way. So energy access uh, somewhat uh, has to has to bring into consideration this uh, geographical uh, factors, and and LNG is one of the future of how energy access can be can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we also need to consider that source of energy is not only oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Other source of energy such as uh, hydro power, geothermals, uh, and, and coal, and including also the, the renewable one. Mm-hmm. And, and is there still a, a good portion of the population of Indonesia that doesn't have access to, to energy services. Maybe if you can give us uh, any insight to share with, um, you mentioned that there's a number of sort of distributed islands in the country. Are there areas of Indonesia that still haven't been either connected to the grid or don't have access to to reliable fuel sources? Um, maybe paint that picture for us to, if there's still any of that work that needs to be done. At a very high level, I can, I can say to you that uh, uh, for example, Indonesia is currently having what's so called the thirty-five thousand megawatt electricity projects, wow. which is a very ambitious project yeah. to basically making sure that access into electricity, uh, which is a very fundamental in terms of how you develop uh, uh, the country uh, into a more prosperous nation, is very critical, and and this is something that. Uh, the government is, is currently focusing now. And the way to do that is basically not solely uh, look into the oil and gas, but also into other sources of energy. Yeah. But the 35,000 megawatt of uh, electricity project all over Indonesia is one of the response to the challenge that we are facing in some of uh, a more well-distributed and and I wanted I just want to sort of bring some context for our listeners to that number that thirty five thousand megawatts of electricity is is an astronomical um, goal and, and something that re- will require uh, that must be one of the largest infrastructure projects in in history of the country um, and, and I think one of the reasons that we were so interested in hosting the International Student Energy Summit in Indonesia is that you have such a dynamic and interesting energy system. You have this, uh, you have the fourth largest population in the world. A lot of people don't realize just the the, the sheer number of people um, that are Indonesian and the fact that it, it trails just behind countries like China and India as far as population numbers go. Um, and so you have this massive population that's distributed across islands. You have oil and gas resources that are again distributed. You have some really interesting geothermal um, resources to provide uh, a renewable source of power. And it's just such a complex uh, energy system in general. And so um, I, I don't I don't think there's a question there, but maybe just uh, if you have any comment um, on on how you guys deal with the complexity of such a large nation with such a diverse and complex energy system let me respond in two words. first of all let me focus on uh, BP yeah, yeah? Uh, and, and let me focus on Tango LNG so let me go back into the fact that 
Indonesia is is is, is huge, uh, huge archipelago, and we have a large population all needing energy. It's not only the only challenge, but but because of our sparse distribution of islands, meaning that we have to uh, uh, we have to really focus on how we're going to distribute energy all over Indonesia. That's that's the role of the government, and I think BP is with a very uh, what do you call it, intended vision and mission to become strategic partners of Indonesia, we want to be part of that solution. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the examples that we already uh, did and can share with you is that with the development of the infrastructure of uh, LNG terminal in Sumatra uh, Energy in the form of uh, LNG from Papua, which is the easternmost state of Indonesia into the westernmost tip of the archipelago, which is in Aceh, in Sumatra, in Aceh, a way that basically need to continue to be to be supported, to be developed. I think we, we foresee that that large LNG receiving hubs uh, will be in development in the future to be able to support, for example, the 35,000 megawatt of electricity project itself. Mm-hmm. And you know that. We, we, we also need to talk about the local, meaning the, the Papua Barat province on which we operate. Uh, I can share with you that commencing last year as well, early of last year, I think December of 2013, uh, we optimizing our uh, power grid in Tango LNG and work together with the state-owned company PLN, local, local state-owned company, Indonesian state-owned company, uh, uh, power company PLN, to connect the extra capacity that we able to build in Tango to the surrounding town of Bintuni as well as the surrounding village of Tango LNG. And this is this is one example on how at the macro level as well as at the micro level uh, a company like BP could do in terms of helping out the distribution of the needy energy uh, for the development of the people. I think the, the, the impact that will be created uh, from such approach is, is humongous because it, it will lean it will lead toward how we create sustainability for a project like Tangu. The value of a LNG project such, such as Tangu is very immense. It's very valuable, uh, critical, um, as simply because the fact that we are migrating into the world of gas itself. Mm-hmm. So I think there is there are parts that the the, the, the government needs to do and they are continuing doing it and they have a strong notion to do that and there is also a part that a company like uh, Tango LNG uh, should also sustain and in between the two is actually a good collaboration and good mutualistic synergy to make sure that in the area of gas, gas project can continue to be uh, uh, flourishing and continue to be sustained. Uh, to support that notion of energy needs, so I have I hope that in general uh, responding to the question you raised because your your question span is very very wide but but yeah. as well as deep but allow me to respond in in uh, from the perspective of what I'm dealing with in basis. 
Yeah. No, and I think that's a great example of how uh, a large organization such as BP can really see that macro challenge. Uh, and and I, I really like the sort of tangible um, micro level example and case study of that. I think that really helps um, uh, our listeners and, and everyone understand that we can talk about these very broad challenges like energy access. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, the, it's very simple, straightforward projects that are that are the things that, that connect people to the grid or connect people to energy for the first time to sort of feel that uh, quality of life increase that comes when people have access to energy. Um, the, the last question that I have for you is in a little bit of a different track. So we've talked a lot about um, Indonesia uh, and some of the work that's going on here. Um, do you have a sense of what the next 10 years of development are going to look like for Indonesia? You've mentioned uh, some of the projects like the 35,000 megawatt uh, project, some of the LNG, um, but maybe taking a, a bit of a broader perspective, um, where do you see the country being in 10 years? What do you see as being the big achievements that Indonesia will have achieved uh, within the next 10 years? I think my view is that energy is a very serious matter for the country. And I think uh, I'm 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 supportive uh, on the nation about, on on the notion of uh, implementing what's so called the national energy policy on which that uh, a- balanced energy mix uh, should be well thought of and should be well uh, engaged toward toward the look toward the all key stakeholders including investors uh, including. Uh, whether it is state-owned company or private uh, sector company, domestic or foreign, because the response for energy needs for Indonesia is real and it has to be mapped out uh, robustly and as succinctly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think with that put into perspective, mm-hmm. um, the fact that we have a plan for that is a good thing. I think that that's the first foundation to for that. And yeah. secondly, is actually the energy... Uh, the mixed energy policy is basically uh, promoting that that we have to be diversifying our energy sources, uh, not heavily only on oil and gas, but also on other resources, yeah. uh, including the renewables. So I think 10 years from now is the time where uh, renewables should play and, 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 and will play a very important role. But, but that has to be basically uh, supported. Uh, has to be intensified, but also supported from now. Yeah. And lastly, uh, I think we need to have a good balance between what we want to happen and what will happen. And and this is something that a dialogue, a continuous dialogue between uh, all the playmaker and all the stakeholders uh, need to be need to be maintained and need to be developed and need to be nurtured, if I may say. Mm-hmm. We need to have the solution on the energy needs for Indonesia in the long run. And I think we have no choice other than make it happen. Uh, I think somewhat we need to control or to manage in a way that what wanted to be happen will happen in in a more, uh, what we call it, more uh, strategic, more uh, focused, and everybody put more serious action on it. But I believe that uh, with all that geographical uh, constraint that we have, there are also opportunities, and the opportunities will turn into a better engagement and better awareness on how energy sufficiency will be developed in accordance to the local 
condition of the country itself. For example, when you are living in the up in hill in the mountain of Papua, I think I think it's almost quite challenging to to to, to supply uh, um, oil or or, or uh, fuel uh, into that that area in in sustainable basis. So, so we need to have a, another way of uh, energy development for that that really fits with the condition over there, which is might probably micro hydro or or mm-hmm. probably a solar system, etc. But but I personally feel and see that that people awareness are are getting there, mm-hmm. and and that's why uh, it will be un- unravel. It will be a, a, a resolve mm-hmm. to be able to have that energy sufficiency yeah. that fits with the condition of the surrounding of the death. Yeah, and I think you you bring up a point that we talk about quite often at Student Energy. Um, that there's no silver bullet that exists in the world of energy. We have, there's many challenges and many opportunities that exist. Uh, and and one of our, our taglines that we've sort of said is that if you get the same answer to an energy problem in India that you got in Norway, you probably did something wrong. And and I think even from your, your examples there, you can really get a sense that uh, what's, what is a, an answer to a question in the mountains of Papua is not going to be the same answer as to your energy challenges in urban Jakarta um, and that there's a really sort of dynamic uh, and emerging group of, of both challenges and opportunities that are, that are taking place in Indonesia. Um, so so that that's it for the questions that I have for you uh, today. Um, is there any any for, for, for some of our listeners who are interested in learning a bit more about Indonesia or learning a bit more about the Indonesian energy system, uh, is there anywhere you would recommend that people go to learn a little bit more? Any good websites or any good res- resources um, or, or places that people could check out this national energy policy that you've referenced? Yes. So the national energy policy is developed by DEN. DEN is in English stands for National Energy Council. National Energy Council is a agency formed by the president to basically think about the high-level uh, um, uh, strategy and and uh, having focus group discussion about what is really the energy issue that we are facing and what are really the potential solutions and what needs to happen, mm-hmm. both in the area of technical as well as non-technical uh, 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 remedies. And... Um, and, and BP is, ha- is developing a close relationship with the uh, uh, National Energy Council. Um, and simply because uh, two things. Number one is that um, we, we, we need to have sustainable support for the LNG and gas businesses and gas investment to continue to uh, develop and, and flourish and sustain in Indonesia. And simply because it is very strategic in nature, and and it is a mutualistic need mm-hmm. for this this uh, industry to 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 be sustained, uh, especially to cope with the challenge that oil is continue to be uh, uh, declining. And then, uh, secondly, uh, the Energy National Council is also thinking about the non-traditional energy sources. Uh, potential development, including the renewable and including like the thing that you already summarized in your uh, in your summary, that, that there is no silver bullet and there is no unique solution and, and we need to think about what is really fit on, 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 on certain places, certain areas. Mm-hmm. For Tangu uh, to be able to 
distribute energy in the from neighboring cities is strategic. Mm-hmm. It's something and strategic and also sustainable, and that's that's something we we need to do. Which means it might provide uh, provide solution toward toward near shore development of of Papua, mm-hmm. but certainly it is not the solution for people living in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And I think you you recap it really well, Sean. Yeah. And and so I'll make sure to post some links uh, to the, that National Energy Policy um, and, yes. the, and the National Energy Council because I just think that, again, um, I don't think people quite realized the fact that Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world and and it is crucially important that the the challenges and and the and the new ideas that are going to come out of Indonesia um, can can definitely set a, a precedent and a case study for the rest of the world um, especially the rest of the developing world on on to your point how do you how do you develop um, what is needed as well as sort of positioning for a future yeah. so um, yeah, so I, I wanted to, that's it for the questions that I have for you today. Uh, I just want to extend uh, a big thank you on behalf of myself and the organization for taking the time to to share a bit of insight on what's going on in the Indonesian energy system uh, and some of the, the unique challenges that are being faced there. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John. Perfect. Take care. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair. You can download previous episodes by searching for Energy Voices in iTunes or your favorite podcast service, or by visiting bit.ly slash energyvoices to stream any previous episodes online. Energy Voices is graciously supported by Bullfrog Power and their Student Life Initiative. To learn more, visit bullfrogpower.ca slash studentlife.